This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! John Templeton. Buy low, sell high. Fear, that's the other guy's problem. And Dr. Miller. George Soros. Paul Peter Jones. Peter Lynch. People wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500. Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. My guest this week is Stephen Bregman of Horizon Kinetics. Jim Grant called him one of the most interesting thinkers on Wall Street, and I have to agree. Uh, I called upon him to share his thoughts on this huge push to passive investing, something he calls the greatest bubble ever. It takes us a little while to get going, and uh, that's entirely my fault, being brand new to this podcasting thing, but uh, there's a lot of dense information, but a lot of valuable information in here. Stephen really gets into some of the distortions being created in the markets by the, the passive investing phenomenon, and what I find especially interesting, the unique opportunities that it creates. We also get into something that I think is just massively underreported by the mainstream media, and that is the structural shift in the way passive investing works that really calls into question its viability as an investment strategy. This is something I'm certain most investors are totally unaware of and merits a lot more discussion. But I won't build it up anymore. Uh, we'll just get right to it. Please enjoy my conversation with Stephen Bregman. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Jesse, it's uh, my pleasure. You know, I um, saw a presentation that you gave at the Grants Conference last fall, and I thought, uh, you know, there's nothing, I think, more important to the markets right now than this huge push to passive that we're seeing. And I have not found anyone who's done as much deep digging into the effects and whatnot of passive as you. But before we get into that, um, let's, let's start at the beginning. Let's, uh, how did you actually get into this business in the first place? By accident. Um, I, was a, um, I was a college dropout for a period of time. My first, uh, my first set of majors, I was a double biology and chemistry major and had designs on uh, going on to uh, veterinary school. Um, but I, I had a very um, mixed uh, record in college, uh, but took a little while to mature. And um, I realized after several years, I should, I should um, leave until I, uh, I was appropriately uh, centered. And... Um, uh, among the many jobs I had uh, during a, a, a two or three year interstice was um, I was finally doing some temp typing and I happened to be about ready to go back to school and it happened to have been, a luck of the draw, uh, an investment firm. And it meant non nothing to me, it was just an abstraction. And um, it was a boutique investment firm. And um, uh, just to give you a sense of the extent of my... my uh, um, the degree to which I was completely uninvolved and ignorant of, of, of markets and finance, uh, the, the financial section of the paper was the one I would throw out on my way to the funnies. So, <laughs> Perfect. So it's not uh, something you were interested in from a young age or anything. You kind of fell into it, which is kind of, you know, fascinating to me, you know, when I think about, you know, Charlie Munger and talking about mental models and a lattice work uh, and, and having a, a background in, in a lot of other disciplines. 
I think I think I think that that address of his to the University of Southern California graduating class. I think that should be read by everybody. Yep. That issue of mental models. Yeah. So you so you studied? Did you say biology and chemistry? Biology. Yeah. Yes. Biology and chemistry. That was my that was my shtick, and so I was ready to go back to school, but I wasn't quite ready to face that again. And I figured, well, I'm here at this investment firm, so I might as well get a little context. So I decided to take economics and accounting. And so that's how I finished up. And um, um, then I was uh, engaged in a uh, career path. So um, um, I went from this boutique investment advisory firm, which was a wonderful place to learn, because there were principals, a few principals, and a few Indians. And I was one of the Indians. I worked on... uh, um, their portfolio management um, system and uh, performance entry and correction and so forth and uh, trade clearance and all those all those basic <clears throat> activities and they let me sit in on their Monday morning um, review sessions and uh, they'd send me out to uh, to the rubber chicken lunches where where uh, investment uh, banks were making presentations and come back with notes and it was a great place to learn because they weren't threatened by me I couldn't be promoted above anybody's head. Um, I was just an Indian. Um, there was no middle level. So it was a great place to learn. Uh, and then I needed to develop a career. So I had to go, um, in one sense, down a step. I went to work at a, at a bank, in a private bank. <clears throat> this one happened to be Bankers Trust Company, a uh, private bank. And Bankers Trust was, uh, some years later, a decade later, um, uh, consumed by Deutsche Bank. And um, so I went to work there as a portfolio assistant. And... The way it works there is you work for, their model was two or three different portfolio managers and uh, you, you help them with what they need to do. And for a while, it's monkey see, monkey do. And I don't mean that even pejoratively, but, but uh, you see what other people are doing and uh, you do it their way. So for quite a number of years, I was learning uh, how to write uh, order tickets and for portfolios and uh, so forth. And then there came a long period of confusion when I would wonder why we were doing certain things. So, for instance, I noticed that when one of my portfolio managers would meet with a client, and maybe I was invited to the lunch to take notes, um, we would agree when I came back to my desk that we would sell five or six stocks and buy five or six stocks. So maybe we would sell some, if people remember the, the name, digital equipment, in order to buy some IBM or vice versa. And then... Uh, sell some Coca-Cola to buy some Nestle's and so so forth and so on. And I began wondering, like, why is it that they're all the right price on the same day? (laughs) (laughs) So there came a period of confusion. Um, Like artists have, uh, like, uh, maybe Picasso had his blue period. And then then there came a period where I began to understand more and came the period of unlearning. And I've been unlearning for years and years and years. And when we get into, uh, I gather you might want to talk about asset, asset allocation models and how that's working or not working. Even then, asset allocation models, or I should say the use and abuse of asset allocation models, was one of the primary reasons why we had to leave my business partner, I, who established, um, founded Horizon uh, in uh, year end 94. It's one of the reasons we had to leave <clears throat> because... Can I keep going in this direction? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so we, the asset allocation models were, were too rigid? or, no. or... Well, well, nothing horrible about that. 
Okay, so or you're just in a private too bank. Math, math focused and not enough common sense focused. <laughs> no, it's it's even it's it's even more pernicious than that. So so what you're referring to, uh, Jesse, and it's, it's perfectly reasonable you should, and it's and you're correct. Is that okay? So maybe a rigid asset allocation model or uh, the way they use it doesn't result in the best possible performance, but you don't need it. They did okay. They were middling, and 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 that was fine. What you really want is you 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 want some kind of responsible stewardship. You're not looking for the best manager in the whole world. Um, you have family trust accounts there and so forth. That was fine. And there was scope. There was scope within the framework for somebody like me who thought he might be more creative, maybe to do better than, than the average. <clears throat> now, here's what happened. We're, we're talking about the, the business of Wall Street and how we'll call it the incentive system, as you, you mentioned when we were chatting before we started the formal part of the program here, uh, how the incentive system in human relations is so critically important. So what happened is that the private bank and Becker's Trust Company, which had been established, if I recall correctly, in 1903, and had been the original part of the bank, um, it was kind of ended up being a backwater of the bank because the rest of the bank grew up around it. And a Bankers Trust was famous at the time or notorious at the time for getting involved in derivatives. And they actually had senior executives there who called themselves partners, which really was, was, was a, a bit dissonant because it's a publicly traded uh, bank. Bank's not supposed to have partners. But they really wanted to be Goldman Sachs. And they were patterning themselves after that. And they were using um, derivatives a lot and um, making a lot of money. Uh, and, but at a certain point, the low-hanging fruit, I suppose, had been, had been picked. And they began looking around the bank for other sources of, of high returns. And they must have looked over that, that wall at the uh, 10 or $12 billion of assets, those, those gentle rolling green hills on the other side of the wall uh, in the private bank, and thought, boy, 10 or $12 billion in assets, we should earn a lot higher return on assets than they're earning. And what they really wanted to do was to sell derivatives into private bank accounts. Now, you can't just say that and do that. What you need is you need a, a, you need a framework for it. You need, you need something plausible. So they began introducing modern um, uh, asset allocation um, models into the private bank, saying, look, we're mostly invested in domestic equities, and you've got some corporate bonds, and you've got some municipal bonds. That's, that's what portfolios look like. But there's a big world out there, and for diversification purposes, you can look at the statistics, the correlation statistics, and the return statistics. You're actually better off in a portfolio if you have some foreign securities. And, you know securities in Europe and so forth, and that's fine. And as long as you're going foreign, there are also emerging markets, right? And emerging markets, of course, that's a little more risky. So maybe a better way to participate there is through a market-linked deposit, like a CD, that's what they called them. But really, they were just derivatives um, broken up into bite-sized pieces. And the way they would really construct them is that you would take uh, an account and maybe there wasn't a lot of cash in it. So you'd sell, I don't know, $100,000 of DuPont or IBM that um, might have been purchased uh, 30 or 40 years earlier and have a cost basis of 50 cents a share. And you would sell that and pay the gains taxes on that and lose the 4 or 5% dividend, 
or 6% dividend, and you take whatever was left over and buy this market-linked deposit for some emerging markets, or believe it or not, the Thai bot. And the idea was that it would be a, a seven-year, let's say, a seven-year CD, and they guarantee you that you wouldn't lose, because it, it, it's like a deposit, so it's, it's got an insurance aspect to it, you wouldn't lose, let's say, more than 10% of your money. Like, if you put in, if you put in $100,000, it could only go down to 90 over five years or seven years. And you would you'd also be, um, have the upside, you'd get 80% of the upside. <laughs> so you can start to see why Deutsche Bank acquired this bank because <laughs> they were they were early on in in these derivative types of products. Um, so what that so just in a nutshell, what that yeah. was is yeah. they were selling you insurance you didn't need because over right. seven years it's highly unlikely that uh, in one year, or two years, or three years, yes, but it's just unlikely that a basket of emerging market stocks would be down over a period of seven years, and then you're not really even getting the upside, and you had to pay taxes in, uh, to sell the securities to, to get into this, and you lost your dividend yield, and basically, you're committing damage to an account. So, so I began, I was introduced to the idea of the use and abuse of asset allocation models toward, the, um, toward, toward solving a, a business uh, issue. Um, early Classic on. Wall Street innovation to generate more fees at the expense of the client. Yes, and therefore okay. we didn't wish to participate, and we felt we had to leave. Okay. Well, tell me, tell me about now uh, Horizon Kinetics. Um, this is the the firm um, that uh, you're running now, and and uh, you know I'd, I'd love to see a little bit about um, or hear a little bit about your process um, now. Okay. Um, we determined that we would like to be somewhere where we could engage in creative thought and uh, make investments that made sense uh, for our kinds of clients, and um, which are typical private client. They might range from someone who has a $250,000 account, and that account is everything that they own. It's critically important to them, and it's got to be a long-term absolute return, not a relative return type of approach, um, that um, it's got to be an after-tax return. Uh, it might have to accommodate cash flows at a certain point. Or we have clients who might have $10 million with us, and if I lost every penny, it wouldn't affect their standard of living other than uh, a 10-minute call once a week when that client, if, if I ever, ever did such a horrible thing, uh, would uh, call his attorney and just say, how are we doing on the Bregman case? So, so that's kind of our cross-section of clients from, from low to high. But it's, it's fascinating that you mention absolute return to me because I just uh, recorded uh, an episode with Eric Cinnamon, who was a small cap manager with an absolute return focus. And it seems like that's probably the most contrarian uh, methodology you could apply today. <laughs> you know? Unfortunately, an absolute return does not mean that you're getting, I'm making up a number here, 6% a year or 10% each year. What it means is that there are plenty of perfectly legitimate objectives other than relative return to some particular index like the S&P 500. For instance, someone could say, and these are real examples from real clients, um, I would like to have, with the amount of capital I'm giving you now, I would like to have, I'm making up a number, $40,000 of cash flow or income a year. And I would like to see that 
dollar amount go up by the amount of inflation over time, or by three or four percent a year. That's a perfectly legitimate approach. Um, that's an absolute return approach. Right, but it, that's not, you know, 99% of investors today are not focused on those types of goals. Their focus is on just capturing the return in the S P 500, which is, you know, uh, the whole push to passive. So, um, it's, a, but it, it's an abstraction. They don't even know, believe me, they do not know. When I say, when I say believe me, I'll back it up. They don't even know what's in the S&P 500. They don't even know what they own. They don't even know what they're asking for. Maybe if you understood what was in the S&P 500, you would never want to own it. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and that's a, that's a great question. So what, what actually triggered you to look into this, um, you know, these uh, abnormalities in the markets that are created by passive? I, I think you call it the ETF divide. What, yes. what really triggered your investigation into this? Okay. Well, part of the, part of the issue is that, um, let's just say, um, for the sake of argument, that um, we know exactly what we're doing, and we're doing it perfectly, and yet, it doesn't mean that clients will be satisfied with what we do. Because I speak to my clients, depending who they are, uh, once every month or two, or once a year, or somewhere in between, but every day... They go home or on their way home, and they hear from everybody else about what to do and what's good and what's bad, uh, whether it's on the radio or uh, in the papers or whatnot, and they have questions. So let's just say for the sake of argument that I'm doing exactly what I think I should be doing. I own what I should own. I'm very pleased with it, and I'm up 10% in a given year. But what if the market's up 20%? And people hear every day that that's bad. I'm doing something wrong. On top of which, by the way, I'm being paid too much for that. Okay? So, therefore, I have to answer those questions. And in order to answer those questions, we have to take a look and we have to see what, what's going on. Can I explain it to someone's satisfaction? And one of those slides... Now, the, the, the slides that you saw of the presentation at uh, Grant's conference, which have been updated because things change and there are new things to talk about, um, uh, those miss the discussion itself. Because I didn't actually speak necessarily to each slide in, in detail. Sometimes I didn't speak to them at all, but they were kind of background. And in some cases, they were pertinent. So I'll give you one, one example um, that one particular slide, which I've updated now for 2016, which talks to your question. So... If you were to make a list, and every time I mention to somebody, they have a, another one I could add. But if you were to make a list of like 10 of some of the most respected, and in some cases renowned investors, who have, who have a public market record in the last 10 or 20 years, um, companies like uh, Gabelli, Mary Gabelli, or David Wintergreen, or the people at Longleaf Partners, or... or um, Pershing Square or Greenlight Reinsurance, um, Bill Ackman, um, Chuck Royce, and so forth. And you make a list of 10 or a dozen of these investors, you'd find that in 2014 and 2015, even 2016, as a group, they typically underperformed on a given year, sometimes two years back-to-back, -back, by 10 percentage points or 20 percentage points. Now, it's never happened before. It's unprecedented. And the telling 
one of the telling aspects of it, qualitatively, is that none of these, they happen to be men, so I'll say guys, none of these guys has, uses the same approach methodology. There's very little overlap in their portfolios. They're really doing different things. And so as a mental experiment, really, what, what, what's the statistical probability that somehow they all lost their touch at the same time? That somehow right. they all got stupid together. Right. So there's a lot of information content in that. And to explore why, that's, that's where the discussion is. And we can talk yeah, about and, it as very much related to the next session. Yeah, it's fascinating because you flip this discussion on its head. You know, the last couple of years you see, you know, in all of the major, you know, publications that, you know, all these active managers are, have lost their, lost their touch. They're, you know, there's, and, and the argument behind that uh, news is that, you know, uh, it no longer makes sense to invest actively. Um, and, and so people use this. And, and I think your point that, you know, what is the anomaly? Is it all these guys losing their touch or is it the actual, the index is the actual anomaly? I think that's just a fascinating point. Well, Jesse, you, um, you took the words out of my mouth because the question I ask when I, when I, I, I mention this to people is, so are these, are these characters anom the anomaly for underperforming? Or to say something that, unless you can back it up, sounds outrageous, is the market, is the S&P 500 the anomaly for outperforming? Now, it sounds bizarre to say, until the aftermath, as we've, we've had aftermaths historically. And I would, I would propose that the market is anomalous now, and not just anomalous, the market has, I think, never in history been this mispriced. Yeah. Well, you call it actually in your in your presentation. You called this the uh, the greatest bubble ever. I think um, so. Yeah. So how do you how do you quantify that? Well, I mean, how, what's your definition of a bubble? Well, yeah, a bubble. One definition of a bubble is when when money or assets are flowing into a certain kind of asset or a certain direction without evaluation, right? So supply and demand, you cannot get away from supply and demand in the market. And if too much money goes in a certain direction without evaluation, meaning clearing prices, not being paid attention to, eventually something gets overvalued. Now, what's happened in, what's happened in the, starting since the financial crisis, 2000, just give or take 2007, 2008, is a, an intersection of two long-term trends. And one has been the, almost at this point, 35 years of declining interest rates from um, 1981, you're talking about um, uh, 15 plus percent, 10-year treasuries. You basically had a generation of declining interest rates. And interest rates now are essentially, have not been lower in the recorded history of mankind. And right. by the way, the recorded history of mankind actually starts with financial history. Because if you go back 5,000 years, the, some of the very first um, recordings we have are financial transactions. So an ancient Sumer, they would have contracts along with interest rates. They would have, they would have basically seasonal loans. So some farmer needs crop seed, he goes and borrows some from somebody who's got it. They record 
the loan on a clay tablet, it actually preceded money. So credit preceded coinage. So what they would do is, how would you figure this out? So they record on a clay tablet, including the interest rate, and they seal it in a clay envelope. <laughs> and what the farmer does is he sows and then he reaps, and maybe he'll pay the equivalent of what might have been 15 or 20% interest rate or more in seed. So he'll pay some portion of, let's say, 25% of his crop to the person who lent him the seed crop. So, so, so we, have, we actually have interest rate records going back that far. Yes, we do. And in the recorded history of mankind, interest rates have not been lower. That's where we are. So nobody wants to be a footnote at an inflection point in history. And if, if 5,000 years of interest rates uh, don't suggest to you, and this is an all-time low, that you are at an historic moment, then I, I, you, you get some issues. So, <laughs> so um, you can't, look, you, you can't know how to sidestep um, a bad market or a bubble market or an overdone market un unless you recognize what you're looking at. And sometimes that requires a little bit of historical context. So the, so the way we got to bubble is you've had, since the financial crisis, you've had basically near zero interest rates. And that was necessary, uh, let's say, to, to save the uh, financial system from collapse. But what it created was another crisis, which is the yield crisis. Okay? Um, the financial crisis was something you could see. You know, there was smoke and flames. The yield crisis is more pernicious. Because, okay, so, uh, you know, six months or a year goes by and you're getting zero on your money market, but you're just waiting. But little by little, your, your bonds that had 6% yields that you bought some years ago, those mature, and then you get 4% for them, and then they mature, or you own them through a mutual fund or, or an ETF. And little by little, the, the distribution yields keep coming down and down and down. And people can't live on that. It's, it's you know, you could have $5 million in the bank, and put them into 10-year treasuries and pay your taxes on it, you might not be able to live, which is, shows you how extreme it is. That's a yield crisis. But at the same time, there had been, little by little, very slow and steady, there had been an increase in the uh, use of indexes and, let's say, ETFs. And that's fine. And we ourselves have used um, indexes periodically. They're a tool. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a fine idea. But... The two of those meeting uh, had a very interesting effect. So, so at the, with the financial crisis, uh, in a vertically integrated fashion, every market participant, the individual investor, the retail broker who served that individual investor, uh, pension fund consultants, pension fund trustees, they all were traumatized to a degree, and they all wanted away from risk. They wanted away from security-specific risk, from sector risk, from manager risk. They wanted away from it all. And here, you are being presented with an ETF, an improved version of a mutual fund. It could trade at the moment. Uh, you, had, you knew what the NAV was every moment of the day. And in its simplest utility, uh, I would say a, an ETF could serve this function in the environment I just described, which is, you might pick your favorite REIT, but what if that's the one that goes to zero? At least you can pick your favorite REIT ETF, 
and maybe it won't do well, but you know it's not going to zero. So therefore, money, every single year uh, from end of 2007, uh, and even in 2007, and in 2008, even as money was pouring out of equities overall in the United States of America, uh, billions, tens of billions of dollars flowed into equity ETFs. So it's been going on for um, almost a decade now, is a constant uh, flow of money out of actively managed securities, which have acting in essence as the bank to fund inflows into equity ETFs. So it's basically been uh, roughly uh, a trillion and a fraction out of actively managed funds and a trillion and a fraction into indexed equity uh, vehicles. That's a $2 trillion swing. And that's a lot of supply and demand dynamic going on. And that is what forms the foundation for the bubble activity today, which I haven't gotten to how I, how I describe that. But that's, that's the dynamic that feeds into that. Well, and, and uh, you know, maybe what you're going to get to is the fact that you know, the, the, the passive you know, strategy there's no um, room for for valuation there, and and I and I, for me, one of the things I think about in terms of a bubble is you know the term euphoria, and you ask you know if you poll investors what type of returns are they expecting by allocating to these passive funds, and they're they're obscene. <laughs> I mean you know you look at you know where where uh, risk free the risk free rate is, and you look at any reasonable forecast for stocks over the next ten years. And it's nowhere close to the you know, 10, 11, 12, 15% investors are broadly expecting. So It can't know. happen. It can't happen. Right. And the reason, there's only one way it can happen. It can happen. I should, I should qualify that. It can happen if the market keeps getting more expensive. It can't happen any other way. And the reason is because there's no, there's no more um, earnings vigor or optionality in the S&P 500, for instance. So I like to do sampling just to make things simple and, and, and relatable. So uh, we don't like to use databases. We like to just sample things. So for instance, the market, stock, well, if you say the market, how's the market doing? I have to ask them, like, which market are you talking about? Right? Right, right. So, so if you're talking about the S&P 500, Let's just pause for a moment and say, like, like what, what is the S&P 500? So right now, if you were to take the, the 30 largest non-financial companies in the S&P 500, um, um, meaning not, not banks, um, and by the way, the 30 largest such companies in the S&P 500, they account for one-third of the entire market capitalization of all 500 stocks. That's how top-heavy it is, okay? Now, if you were to look at the revenue growth of those those companies in 2016, if you had to guess, unless you know, what would you say it is? Very low single digits. Okay. You're, you're, you're there. It's 4.1%. 4. Now, people might say, well, that doesn't seem so low. Maybe it's not the highest. Well, they're right. It's neither here nor there. But take away one security, Facebook, and there was no revenue growth in the S&P 500. Revenue growth was down 1.2%. And if you take away Facebook and Amazon, revenue growth was down 
So where's the optionality? That that's that might that that should give you pause, right? The reason well, it used to be that it, you, it should give you pause because it used to be that valuations were tied to growth. <laughs> yes. Yes. Now, by the way, I have to explain, like, why was there no revenue growth? It'll surprise many people to know that if you look at the companies they know and are familiar with um, as, as um, representing the S&P 500. So, um, top 30, I'll just mention some names. They're Pfizer and Apple and Microsoft and Chevron and ExxonMobil and Merck and Johnson & Johnson and Coca-Cola and GE and Home Depot and so forth. Okay. If you take the companies that were the traditional um, blue chip mega cap companies, meaning we'll, we'll address Amazon and Facebook separately, and, and the and Google, and the Fang stocks, but McDonald's between 2008 and 2016 revenue increased by 0.6 percent a year. Okay, Coca Cola. Same story. They actually had declining revenue. Um, Pfizer, or you look at all these companies. They really are mature. It's not their fault. They've, they've been expanding for generations, and they've basically saturated their markets. There are only so many more on a per capita basis, diapers and soap and cigarettes they can sell. And it's not very much. So they're really mature. There really isn't the traditional source of earnings growth there anymore. So there's no optionality. And they're selling at 22 times earnings. Now, the, 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 the typical riposte is that, well, historically, 22 times earnings is not very high if interest rates are low and interest rates are very low. So that's true. But 20 years ago, 30 years ago, these were growth companies. Their earnings were growing 15% a year. And now they're not. Now, traditionally, and here's why you start getting into bubble discussions. Because part of what you're losing is you're losing price discovery. As you, as you said before, there is no ETF analyst and there's no analyst at the pension fund that employs ETFs whose job it is to evaluate the valuation. It's not in the job description. Valuation is not a factor. And as far as McDonald's goes, the fastest growth aspect of their financial profile between 2008 and 2016 was their debt, which increased by 154%. And the fastest growing part of their market profile was their share price and their P.E. ratio. But earnings really haven't caught up that much. So... Well, you know, so, that's, I, there's a, a, a fascinating uh, paper that was released earlier this year, and, it, and it, it quantifies exactly what you're talking about. I love hearing about the individual examples, um, but they quantified that the, the greater the passive ownership, you know, index ownership in a stock, the less reactive it is to fundamental changes in its business. Yes. And, and that's, you know, essentially the definition of a bubble, right? <laughs> that it, well, but it, yes, what's happened now is... Dislocated it, from fundamentals. Yes, what, what you're talking about is the automatic bid, okay? So what I described before about the flow of funds out of active into passive is that so long as you have net money flowing into these various ETFs, they, the stocks in those indexes, in those ETFs, automatically get a bid every day. So McDonald's, once upon a time, if we go back to the pre-financial crisis 
year, let's say 2007, people bought McDonald's, by and large, individually. And they voted with their feet. If they, were be, if they started to become disenchanted with the revenue growth or the valuation, little by little, one by one, various holders of McDonald's would sell it and go buy something else. Now, maybe they were making a mistake. Maybe what they bought was no better. But they could vote with their feet. But nowadays, nobody bought McDonald's individually. And therefore, they can't sell it individually. All they can do is sell the basket that it's in. And that, I would say, is why you're getting this diminution of volatility on individual stock level for stocks that are in these, in these indexes. It's artificial. Well, yeah, and because there's a bid for everything, as long as there's inflows. Well, you, you had a great, in your presentation, you had a great metaphor for the difference between this bubble and the dot-com bubble. I mean, in the dot-com <laughs> bubble, we, we had, uh, right, there was actually some terrific uh, uh, bargains, you know. I mean, there was one segment of the market that went nuts, but, uh, you know, a lot of those old economy and bricks-and-mortar companies, there were a lot of those that could be bought, you know, very good valuations at the time. It's different today. Um, share, share with my audience that me- metaphor. I just, oh. I think it's perfect. Okay, so I likened the the internet tech bubble uh, period. Let's say peaked in '99 uh, of the first few months of uh, 2000. To let's say you're on a rowboat or a or a, a kayak, uh, you know, far enough from shore, and and you see a water spout. And uh, you look at it, and you look up, and it's very impressive. It's big, and it's moving, and it, 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 it's got this shape. But you, you, you recognize it's just a bit of wind, and there's really not that much water in it. There's really not that much force in it. So that was more like the Internet bubble, which engulfed a lot of the market, certainly sectors of it, but not all of it. And I would like in today, and the reason why it's, it's, it's really more invidious, because people don't see... People don't see it. It's more like being in that, in that self-same uh, rowboat out at sea, and the whole level of the sea is risen by two or three feet, kind of like a, a tsunami wave that's rolling under you, and you don't even recognize it. Uh, you know, tsunami waves, they, they create a lot of damage once they get to shore, but they're only a, they're only a few feet. You wouldn't notice it even if it's rolling under you. And that, encount, that, that encompasses like incomparably more, more weight and energy. Um, that's what that's what this one is like. It's really encompassed almost the whole market, with one exception, which is anything that's been excluded from indexation for very specific reasons, having to do with the business end of indexation, which we can talk about if we get there. But anything not any non-index centric stock is an exception, and there are the, the the environment is littered in a way we haven't seen in our investing lifetimes with with classic value stocks. Um, nothing wrong with them other than the fact that they're not in the flow of funds. They're invisible. But within the index-centric world, which is what people talk about and what they know, uh, valuations are unsustainable but for the continued inflow of funds, the automatic bid that's been going on. Well, yeah, and I, and I think when, when I heard you first use that metaphor, the first thing I thought of was uh, you know, probably the be- my, my favorite measure to kind of demonstrate valuations today is, is that uh, you know, the median stock uh, price to sales ratio in the SP 500 is like 50% higher than it's ever been in history today. So it, it just demonstrates 
that it's everything this time. It's not just the market cap weighted, you know, the Cisco's and, and whatnot. And it was uh, 17 years ago. Um, but that, that brings me to another point. Was I, I'm embarrassed. I didn't know this until you brought it up, which is the float adjusting uh, change that they made to these indexes they use that they base the ETFs on. Um, oh, yes. you talk, talk about that a little bit. I will in just a moment because I want to affirm what you just mentioned about the idea of taking a an unsubtle, very basic uh, measure of valuation that doesn't require any advanced degree. Uh, here's another one. Uh, you use the median um, uh, price to sales yep. value. Yep. Here's, a, here's Pat, the simplest you can get. There's a measure you could take the market capitalization, the market value of all publicly traded companies in the United States of America. And this is something you can do at home. Uh, two easy ways. One is you can pull up uh, the Wilshire 5000 uh, index, and it'll, it'll, it'll give you um, an estimate of the total market capitalization. Um, and there's another one which is a, a little more accurate, but it, it's a rounding error difference, which is that the, um, the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, if you go onto the website, they publish quarterly um, an, a measure of the total publicly traded market value of stocks. Anyway, you take that and you divide it by the GDP of the United States. And that gives you a very simple measure of the valuation of all stocks relative to GDP. And it was only exceeded once before. This series only goes back to about 1950. It was only exceeded once before. And that was um, the end of 1999 or March of 2000. And, and not by much, you know. We're, we're almost there today. And actually, if you that that series is you know dated, so it's only I think accurate up to the end of last year. And if you you know incorporate this year's gains into that, we're essentially roughly equivalent to where we were in March of two thousand. You are correct. I think I think the last dated uh, the last number they had was maybe from September. Actually, not even okay. Not even year yeah, ago. yeah. So it's it's you know seven eight months so old. There. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it's exactly the same. It's funny that you know, I, I look, I call that the the Warren Buffett yardstick because he wrote about that in '99 and 2001. But it's funny that he's not talking about it today, you know, and he's actually pushing <laughs> passive investing today. And I, you know, I, I think he's probably thinking more about his legacy than anything at this point. But uh, well, I wonder that that brings up John Bogle. If you want to go there, if not, uh, we don't have to because I I, I I I had the 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 honor of debating John Bogle. Uh, at the uh, Grants Interest Rate Observer Spring Conference um, um, a month or so ago. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, preparing to debate him and therefore having to read things he's been writing and, and saying in recent years, I came to the realization that I actually agree with 95% of what he says. And, and even, the, even within that 5% difference, I even see why I can agree with him there. And this has to do with and maybe Buffett has the same notion he does. So I realize that he's got a different job than I do. So my clients can afford consultative services. But John Bogle's average client, in essence, his audience, the, 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 the average, or the median, I should say, <laughs> the median 34-year-old head of household in the United States of America, uh, referring only to households that actually have savings, because many don't, has an average, I think, of something like $24,000, $25,000 in savings. So that's not much. That's who his audience is. 
And when you think about the average person, how are they possibly to figure out what security to buy or not, or even how to evaluate a manager? They're simply unprepared. And, and if you think from a public policy point of view, the way he does, which is entirely different than, than I've had to think, I realize, what are you going to tell them? It has to be something that is simple and easy to follow, that's consistent. And he says the safest place to be, he doesn't, he, I'm putting words, I'm not, it's not what he says, but you have to be paternalistic about it. And you have to put them in the safest vehicle you can find, which is something very broad, the, which is based upon the original concept of indexation. And what do we have? We have the S&P 500, we have the Russell 1000, or, or something like that. And he just wants to exhort people, put it here, leave it there, don't play games with it. And even John Bogle will say, or Jack Bogle, will say, and he, has his, he, has his, he breaks it down, the reasons why, it's fairly simple, don't even expect over the next 10 years get more than about 4 or 5% at best from, from stocks, and he has his reasons, and you can't find uh, a more consistent and, and, and um, um, a committed uh, uh, booster of, of buying stocks. And I'm not, even, I'm, I'm, not as, I'm not as optimistic as he is, but he might be thinking, you know, what's the alternative? So there may be that element, perhaps, in what Warren Buffett is talking about, maybe not. Right. Yeah. No. It has to. You're absolutely right. It has to be simple message. Has to be consistent. And you know, I applaud him for what he's done for that class of investors over over time. It's been you know phenomenal to see the the fees and and you know trading costs and all these things come down and the products available become a lot more you know uh, broad. But uh, I, I do have a problem with the. Uh, with this float adjusting, um, you know, it's it's not the same S&P 500 that the track record shows, you know, going yes. back however long. So, you know, that's almost a little bit, not a little bit, it's disingenuous. Well, I mean, the whole it, thing is, so the fees, so, so this is the first thing, there's something called availability error. It's a very common error human beings make, which is, is to make decisions based on the information immediately available to you, <laughs> as opposed to all the information. And when when there are complaints about active managers not doing as well as the indexes for quite some number of years now, and they charge more, right? So why not, why not buy something that, that charges less? There's, there's a lie in there. So, so this has to do with the business of Wall Street. The business of low fees is actually responsible for all sorts of additional dangers that have come about. Now, if we start with the float-adjusted mechanism, this is no different than the reason why we left Bankers Trust Company. They wanted to put these market-linked CDs in there. And by the way, what I didn't mention, but it's the same thing, is within that market-linked CD, you can't see what the bank's fees are. But they were huge. Because between only getting 90% of the risk of this emerging markets index and only 80% of the upside <laughs> over the following five or seven years... That's 30% that the bank took for itself, okay? Wow. So it's about, it's about, it's about their, their, their fees and self-interest. Now, why, what's his business about the S&P's change in methodology to a float-adjusted method back in 19, excuse me, back in 2005? Okay, so in 2005, the S&P changed its methodology. So it used to be that 
you have a number of shares outstanding for Microsoft uh, or for Walmart, and you multiply it by the price, and that's the total market capitalization, and that determines its ranking, uh, uh, meaning its, its, its percentage weight in the index. So maybe Microsoft, I'm making up a number, is, is, um, is 4%. And Walmart was something. And that's what it was. Now, S&P 500, Standard & Poor's, changed that in 2005. And they went to something called the float-adjusted method. And what that is, is if, if Microsoft was 4%, but there was 40% inside ownership, right? They said, well, look, that's inside ownership. That's not even available to be traded. So we're going to reduce its weight in the index from 4% to 2.4%, right? So, so, so why did they do that? Well, they did it. All this is business. If you think about it from a business perspective, from the business of being a Wall Street uh, business. So Standard & Poor's used to make a nice enough living, I would say, collecting information and disseminating data. So you want some information about uh, the S&P 500, you pay them for the data. If you want to manage a mutual fund based upon the S&P 500 index, and you've got a billion dollars under management, you pay them some basis points, and they just get it. It's like a royalty. It's very nice. But they wanted to get into the asset management business. And now we get to the business of indexation, which is, it's a low-fee business. So if it's a low-fee business, you need to operate in scale. And they could see easily enough that if they took in a certain amount of money and you want to be scalable, you have a problem if your scalability, your ability to collect more assets is going to be limited by certain members of your index that don't have that much trading liquidity, either because they're smaller or in the case of, of Microsoft uh, or Walmart, they have 40% inside ownership. So they moved to this float-adjusted methodology, but they never adjusted downward the historical performance of the S&P 500 as if they had been on a float-adjusted basis all the prior decades. And I have to tell you that substantially most of the returns of the Standard & Poor's 500 by our, by our investigation above that of, let's say, a, a corporate bond, a long-term corporate bond rate, came from what I would call owner-operated companies that had a lot of inside ownership, the true entrepreneurial companies. And you were, you were to make up a list of them over time, uh, including IBM under uh, uh, the Watsons, or Oracle, or um, Intel, um, Andy Grove, or Hewlett-Packard, Messrs. Hewlett and Packard, and so forth and so on, you would find they were responsible for essentially all of the equity premium you got. So they didn't adjust their historical uh, figures downward. Uh, I know you used to uh, be in the money management business. You couldn't get away with that. I couldn't get away with it. This is actually a big deal. It's it's astounding to me, and and nobody is talking about it. it it's it's just common sense. Would you you know rather invest your money? 
with an owner operator who has a huge stake in the success of the business or a caretaker who doesn't own any stock and yeah. you know is just uh, you know kind of babysitting the business until he gets his golden parachute you know it, one of the things that I started uh, doing early in my career was following insider activity and uh, you know when looking at companies where there's massive insider buying and uh you know that was just a screen i still use today because that's a, that's just a sign that uh management's putting their money where their mouths are and they want to share in the upside of the business uh, for for the most part um and so eliminating those companies you know in 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 that case it's just it's astounding to me you're you're eliminating um, like oh. you said, most, a lot of the most attractive uh, investments in the index. I see where you're going. So here's here, here's a here's a marvelous irony. It's almost it's almost it's almost uh, it's almost humorous. So you have some large company like I don't know Microsoft, and it's got a, a reduced weight the index because of the forty percent inside ownership, and as Bill Gates begins to let's say distance himself remove capital from the company by selling shares. Therefore, the float increases, and therefore, the weighting in the index increases. And so, as the insider is getting out, (laughs) then everybody else starts buying more. And the reverse happens also. If you have some company that they just keep issuing more and more shares, maybe because they like the price, maybe because they have a need, but they're issuing more shares, they're actually selling their company, they're diluting it, Right, the, the indexes are buying more exactly. Yes. But yeah. on the opposite side, if you have an owner operator, and as you well, you were using the case of of your regular agent CEO where they're buying in shares. But a company has, for whatever reason, let's say good and proper reason to buy in their shares. They think it's stup- They think they they think it's cheap. They just want to buy in shares. It's it's the best thing going. They'd rather put their money into their shares. They're so cheap than than expend it on some on something else, and therefore their float decreases. And so as the insiders are buying, therefore the index has to reduce the weight and managers who are uh, aligned with the index or the ETF have to sell. Right. It's, it's the most asinine you know, thing I could think of. If you were going to put a, uh, a specific strategy into these indexes that would be so uh, against the interest of the owners. <laughs> I mean, this, yes. I couldn't think of one more than this. Where you have, you, like you said, you have a company that's decided they're going to buy back a ton of stock. The insiders see the opportunity as well. They all want to participate and, uh, you know, to, in buying, and, and it's going to force you to, to sell to them. Uh, and, what and happens, vice versa. It's, it's, it's amazing. what happens when machines run the market, when you have these, these algorithms put in place, these, these, these digital approaches to a, a social construct, right? People try to be scientific about the marketplace, but the marketplace is a social construct. And, and it's almost like um, a science fiction movie. What happens when machines take over? Well, it's bad, they're always disaster movies, but here machines have taken over. Yeah. Well, you and uh, you you make the point also that this creates some interesting opportunities um, if you're willing to look at those stocks that are ignored by the indexes. Yes, actually, one way. Again, this is something that you can do at home, and it's not dangerous. Um, which is you can actually use the the rule sy- system of of the indexes to locate um, really interesting classic 
value stocks, but actually better than classic value stocks. Classic value stocks typically you would think of are, are um, uh, out of the Graham and Dodd era, um, and they were quite aware that there was the value trap uh, problem with them. Value trap pertaining to companies which are really cheap. They may, maybe they own some asset, some hidden asset or some dormant asset, and or a lot of cash in the balance sheet, and the stock is selling at a deep discount to that. So you've got a company that has, it's selling below, 50% below combination of its net cash and some real estate they own that's on the balance sheet at the wrong price. Okay, it's a 50% discount. And if, if Carl Icahn comes along and sees it in the course of a year, you're golden, you have a double. But what if he doesn't notice you for five years? You're otherwise not growing. You're really not otherwise a growth company. Um, uh, well, then it's still an okay return. It's, it's 15% a year or whatnot. And if he never notices you, well, you're just stuck there. But that's not the case now. So what happens is the, the, to the degree now that the investment world is seen through the lens of indexation, if you're outside the focal uh, point <laughs> of, of that lens, you basically don't exist. You're invisible as far as the analytical world is concerned for the most part. And uh, no one's coming to your door to buy your shares. You're not in the index flow of funds. So that's kind of a, a we call it the ETF divide, or it's kind of an umbrella uh, on, on pricing. So one thing you could do is, even if you like to be a little database driven, um, you can look for some market sector. It could be an industry sector, it could be a geographic sector, or you could really try to overlap the two, like a, as in a Venn diagram, and look for um, some sector that is underrepresented in terms of its index weight. You can look at the MSCI um, uh, All Country Index or World Index. And for instance, if you, if you were to do it with, with um, let's start with something more closer to home. Let's just, let's just take, for the moment, real estate. And um, what we're going to look for are companies that are not popular or maybe do even hardly exist in the realm of ETFs and indexation. And you'll find it's because of trading volume. So if you look at all the real estate company stocks and you sort them by daily trading volume in descending order, here are a few examples of what the relationship is, because it has to do with the business of indexation and the need for what I'll call industrial scale investing in terms of trading liquidity. Uh, I'll read you four names, okay? Um, most popular, probably uh, real estate company around and the largest in almost any major REIT index is Simon Properties Group. So they have um, 1.8 million shares traded a day and it's in 158 different exchange-traded products, and it's priced at 13 times book value. <laughs> now we'll go to Howard Hughes Corp., which we happen to own a lot of, and it's not a small company. Um, um, it has 161,000, not 1.8 million, 161,000 shares traded a day. It's in 57 exchange-traded products. And it's at 1.9 times book value. Now we'll go to something you probably haven't heard of called Gladstone Land. Uh, they specialize in buying and leasing uh, to farmers, farmland. And they have 44,000 
shares traded a day. There are nine exchange-traded products, and those aren't very large anyway. And it's 1.5 times book value. And then we'll go to a company called Dream Unlimited, very well-run company uh, in Canada. And it's got 7,000 shares traded a day. It's in zero ETFs, and it's at 0.9 times book value. By the way, inside ownership, um, Simon Property, 7%, Howard Hughes Corp, 21%, Gladstone Land, 22%, Dream Unlimited, 80%. So you see there's a direct, at least in this, the selections I made, an unvarying uh, correlation um, of valuation and declining trading volume. Now, take you one more example. If you went into shipping, now shipping is underrepresented um, in the global sectors, industry sectors uh, weightings. I don't remember the number. It could be like 20 basis points or something like that. And a country that's probably underweighted is Norway. Um, they're also probably like 20 basis points. And so that provides the, 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 the possibility that there's just not enough um, indexation interest in those, uh, let's say, Norwegian shipping companies. And maybe it's a place to look. So here's what you'll find. I'll go through the same exercise a little more quickly. Four companies, um, all Norwegian, related to the ocean. And in declining, um, declining um, average daily trading volume, We'll start with AP Muller Maersk, which is the largest publicly traded container shipping company in the world. It's not small. It's got a $35 billion market cap, 50-plus uh, percent inside ownership. But the average daily trading volume is 61,000 shares. So it's 1.1 times book value. Wow. Subsea 7, which is offshore drilling platforms. Uh, actually, um, they do engineering under the, uh, under the platforms. Um, 28,000 shares traded a day. 0.9 times book value. Stolt-Nielsen very well-run family company, uh, specialty ships for uh, chemicals and so forth. Um, 20, 24, excuse me, 2.4 thousand shares traded daily, 0.7 times book value. And last, CM, S-I-E-M, CM Industries, um, 200 shares traded a day and 0 0.5 times book value. So that's just one mechanism by which a tool you can use indexation itself to find undervalued companies. I, I, I love this idea. You know, well, two points I, I'd like to make. One is that, you know, just the, the idea that liquidity and valuations could be so highly correlated is just evidence in itself that there's something wrong going on in the markets, right? Because, you know, a long-term investor shouldn't necessarily be so concerned with liquidity uh, as long as, you know, you, you're going to own it for a period of time. But um, so, you know, that that's just fascinating to me. But also the, the opportunity that this creates is very interesting too. And it's something that I've, I think I've come across by accident just through this, uh, through the fact that I do look so closely at insider activity. You know, I've, I've, Last summer, um, I came across Western Refining. The refining stocks had been hammered, and uh, you know Western had a, a huge insider ownership, and the insiders were buying more. And so, you know, it got very, very cheap, and was obviously you know ignored by the indexes, not just because of the float, but also because the, probably the refiners you know became increasingly volatile and and less attractive to the low beta, low volatility uh, ETFs. Um, but it's interesting, you know, to look at it from the standpoint of uh, using the structure of the ETFs um, to take advantage of them. Yep. Knowledge is power.
Yeah. Um, I ha- so, you know, you also mentioned uh, in your presentation that, um, you know, this is a massively crowded trade. And, and obviously when there's been a one point, however many trillion dollars flown into these index passive products, um, it's obviously extremely crowded. And, and then all these um, kind of disparities and anomalies we're seeing in the markets also demonstrate just how crowded it is. Um, how, how does this, uh, you know, how, how does this, how's this going to change? Ah, well, this, this is, this is why it's such a huge bubble. So, uh, a year ago, if you're asking me a year ago, you know, could there be a crash? Well, even before I get to that, well, clients have asked me the same question. They've heard me say these things. They say, yeah, but okay, but why doesn't it keep going, right? What makes it stop? So it's expensive, but you say money keeps pouring in, so I'll stay here and, and I'll, I'll do okay. And it can't happen that way. And the reason it can't happen that way is that, as I, I, I mentioned earlier, and there's a, there are charts for this that they're making uh, the rounds more and more often, is you can see that pretty much dollar for dollar, all of the enormous flows of funds into ETFs and other index products have been funded by the bank, if you will, of actively managed funds and active, active, actively managed equities. And there's a finite amount of money in there, right? Eventually, the bank will run dry. And you can look at the amount of money that's even flowed in. It was a record year for inflows into ETFs uh, in 2016. I think it was $280 billion. And you can look at, you can, there are ways to make intelligent estimates about how much actively managed money is available to continue to fund this. And there will come a time when, the, when the, those flows begin to dry up um, because the money's been withdrawn, because there are some people who are simply not going to sell, so, so there's, there's kind of a, uh, a limit well above zero. And that sets up a very interesting shift because, as people might know, uh, prices are made on the margin, meaning the, the price of a stock and the price of an index, which is based on all the stocks in the index, are really based, in a sense, on the last trade, right? the last buy or sale. And right now, there's effectively an automatic bid that goes on every day by money flowing into indexes, meaning the, the, the indexes, the ETFs, are really the, the marginal trade right now. They're the ones that determine what the last trade is, by and large. But what happens when the net inflows start to peter out? Then the baton passes to the marginal trade becomes that of the active manager. And when I referred to the massive underperformance, massive, of, of these renowned um, active managers before, there's basically a single reason why they underperformed the marketplace uh, last year and uh, the year before and the year before, which is they simply, the Mary Gabellis of the world and the David Einhorns of the world um, are simply not going to own Amazon and Under Armour, and, and they're not going to own the FANG stocks. And if you think that just not owning those, those few companies uh, isn't enough 
to make a difference, let me share something with you that I think you'll find very edifying. Okay? So, so, in, again, I said we like to do sampling. Oh, I, I, did, I think I did this with you, didn't I? Did I, I do this with you? The, yeah, the 30 largest non-financial S&P 500 companies? Yes, okay. yeah. Okay, we did that. That had to do with revenue growth, okay? But, let's go to performance. So, if you take the entire S&P 500, in 2015, I think it was uh, up 1.5% or so, okay? If you just take away 10 names... Um, and you know what those are. Those are the FANG stocks, uh, right. Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft. You just take away 10 names, it was down 2.5%. That's how narrow it was. Now, in 2016, it wasn't quite as narrow, but of the 11.9% return of the index, almost 40% of it came from just 15 names, meaning if you didn't happen to own those 3% of the names of the SP 500, your return would have been like 450 basis points lower. That's huge. And basically, that's what you've got. Yeah. And it's, I think it's even more dramatic this year again. It's kind of like the 2015 year where, you know, it's, it's literally just the fangs driving the major indexes and everything else is, is, uh, is doing, doing poorly. Um, so it's a very big risk. Basically, you, you are exposed to this enormous systemic risk uh, largely, partly related to interest rates, related to this flow of funds. It's a liquidity-driven market, meaning we, you pay for trading liquidity. And you might think you're diversified by industry sector or by a mid-cap versus large-cap or by ge geography, but it's basically all the same trade. And what's going to happen is you're really not diversified. You're only diversified semantically, but not in fact and you're, you're really at great risk. So if you want true diversification, for, meaning for, for true risk purposes, diversification purposes, you really need to start finding securities that are outside the indexation flow of funds that really are idiosyncratic in the way they'll behave. They might do well, they might do poorly, but not for reasons the rest of the market does well or poorly. That's where you have to go. You have to find those. And that's another, you know, product of of this push to passive, is the synchronicity among all the stocks in the indexes. They all, you know, begin to synchronize to each other because of just you know the way the flows work. So, yep. uh, yeah, it works on the upside. It works the same way on the downside too. Yes. Yes. So, um, well, I, I wanted I, one final thing. I know I've I've taken a bunch of your time today. I really appreciate it. But there's one other thing that I just noticed on the Horizon Kinetics website, and that's your wealth indexes that you've put together. Can uh -huh. you tell me about those? Yes, I will say first of all, they're they're a somewhat weak form of what we would prefer to do, but um, you have to make some concessions when you make an index, right? It can't be active. You have to have a rule set, and whenever you make a rigid rule set. There are going to be some trade-offs. So it's as close as we could come, but still a very, very, I think, useful tool and approach. So what we've been endeavoring to do, we're not antagonistic to indexes. It's just the way indexations have been hijacked by the ETF industry is what we are observing and what we're antagonistic to. But indexes themselves can be very useful. So the indexes we have now in general as a class, 
they have a flaw. And the, one of the flaws is that, forget supply and demand issues that we've been talking about, um, is that they're descriptive. Meaning that all the tools we're using are descriptive tools. So you have an index of some sort, and you describe companies by market cap or by trading volume or by their historical volatility or industry sector, one thing or another. They describe to you what it is, the shape of it, but it doesn't tell you anything about how they'll do in the future. So we thought there's, you can improve the indexes. You can make something that's more predictive of a certain type of return. And, and we started, and we started, one, one, of the, one of the indexes we started was we call the 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 um, the, uh, the uh, wealth index, and I think it was private labeled by a company called Virtus. So there's something called Virtus Wealth Masters, and it's based upon the idea of an owner operator. And an owner operated company is a company in which the person in charge, the CEO or or uh, chairman of the board, the, the decision maker, is number one the largest shareholder. And number two, and this is the strong form, the owner-operator form, that their investment in that company constitutes a major, if not the major, portion of their wealth. So we're talking, ideally, about someone's worth $250 million, but $240 million is in the stock. And what that does is that basically overcomes the agency problem. There have been reams of academic studies written about the agency problem. And their entire organization is devoted to trying to figure out how to align the interests of management of publicly traded companies with the shareholders. And they go into all sorts of complex and subtle discussions about stock options and resets or restricted stock and so forth and so on. But at the end of the day, the problem with that conventional approach is that though that is wealth that is granted to the CEO... And uh, if I may talk about Jack Welsh for a moment, and I don't mean to demean him in any fashion, this is not a reflection upon his intelligence, upon his drive, upon his honesty, upon his competence um, or creativity. But the fact is that at the end of the day, Jack Welsh's path to true wealth was through a highly negotiated, very, very thick document called the Compensation Package, right? And it must affect in some fashion, because there, there are different benchmarks within it. Uh, sales growth, or return on invested capital, or one thing or another. And people respond to that. It's negotiated so that you can respond to it properly. That's very, very different than someone who's got substantially all of their wealth, meaning capital at risk, in the shares of the company with which they're dealing. They're making decisions on a whole different basis. It's got nothing whatsoever to do with sales growth this year or next year. Nothing whatever. It has everything to do with, number one, not a losing capital, meaning <laughs> capital at risk, and number two, getting an adequate long-term return on capital. And they might make decisions that are actually um, the polar opposite of what a, an intelligent, capable agent CEO will do. So, for instance, one of the best examples everybody could see readily from the financial crisis, um, 2007, 2008, 2009, is that there was hardly a single owner-operator company publicly traded that had a problem. There were a few. 
but very, very few had any problems, number one, because their balance sheets, if you look at the balance sheet of an owner-operated company on a, let's say, a ratio basis, look at the balance sheets, so it's X percent in cash, X percent in uh, uh, property plant equipment, and so forth and so on, they pretty much all look alike, almost regardless of whether it's a Hong Kong property company uh, or a U.S., I don't know, equipment distri- distributor. And what they have in common is they might have debt, but they also have a lot of cash. They have a lot of liquidity. And, and, and it might be suboptimal from the perspective of a freshly minted MBA, but I believe it serves two purposes. Number one is they never want to have their noose in the neck. When the lending window closes, they're not going to be in trouble. And number two, you want to have liquidity and, and tactical strategic flexibility if, if the market uh, becomes, uh, uh, um, you have the, the disjunctions in the market. Right. Yeah. So, Go ahead. I'm sorry. So anyway, so, so, so that's what I mean by, by an owner-operator. And we've done studies to show, number one, that as I alluded to earlier, the S&P 500 over time, if you excluded the owner-operated companies from it while they were owner-operated companies, you wouldn't ever want to bother owning the S&P 500. They're responsible, the, entrep- the true entrepreneurs, for the excess returns over bonds. And we even went so far as to check, you know, maybe it's an anomaly that has to do with the United States culture or geography or something. So we, we did a kind of a test, and we went to a market that was as far culturally and geographically as we thought we could get as a big public traded market um, from the U.S. as we could, and that was Japan. And we evaluated Japanese owner-operators. And we found out that over a 10 and 10-plus 10 year periods, it was, it was even, more mark, uh, even more marked excess performance, which, which the U.S. owner-operators have. The U.S. owner-operators, their performance is so far above the S&P 500, hundreds of basis points, it would like blow your socks off. It was even more stark in Japan. So during a decade in which the Japanese indexes were actually down, the Japan owner-operator index that we created was not only up, I believe it also beat the S&P 500. Now, it sounds bizarre, and yet if you look at the issue of capital at risk, it makes perfect sense. So I'll just use a, an example. I could make it up, but it's actually a real example. Let's say you had a Japanese company that made diapers traditionally, owner-operated. And even though Japan, the market as a whole, uh, GDP is flat, and the stock market's going down and down and down, and you might say it's a zero-sum game in aggregate, it doesn't mean there aren't winners and losers within it. So you have this owner of a factory that makes diapers, and he sees an opportunity in Japan. Maybe the opportunity is the aging population. You need adult diapers he might commit more capital and build a new factory and invest in advertising if he believes he's going to get a return on his investment. And if he doesn't, if he didn't see it out, maybe he just gradually begin to withdraw his capital from the company and find ways to distance himself and reallocate it elsewhere. But he saw an opportunity in the demographics of the Japanese population. And then maybe he saw, um, not so far away in China, a growing middle class that can move from reusable cloth diapers to disposable diapers, 
and decides to invest capital there. So, so it makes perfect sense that an owner-operator index in Japan, even in Japan, would have an expected high long-term return, even in a market that's declining, because otherwise they wouldn't commit their capital. Whereas an agent CEO might very well do that for various reasons that make sense to the agent CEO um, that we should expand into China for these various reasons, but return on capital <laughs> in a very clear sense. Not necessarily. Uh, yeah, risk-adjusted well, is not there. It, well, and it gets to, you know, the, to me, one of the, the worries that I have about the current market cycle is the massive leveraging up of corporate America just to buy back stock, just to push prices yep. higher and, and yes. that they, they make their, their bonuses. Um, and owner-operators don't think like that. Um, but no. this, this index sounds like, you know, it takes advantage of that flaw in the index, right? These are all going to be companies underweighted uh, by ETFs because of the large insider ownership. Is that correct? Uh, it's, as I said, it's a somewhat weaker form. So the, the rules are a little weaker. So, for example, there could be a company in this index in which the CEO is indeed the largest shareholder, but, or he's on the board. Let's say he's on the board. Let's say it's a guy like Sam Zell. And let's say he's the largest shareholder, and it's a lot of money, but it's only one of many, many investments he has. And it's not even a major investment for him. That might be in the wealth index, but it's not the same thing as an owner-operated company. Although there might be a Sam Zell company in there, which is a, is a legitimate owner-operated company. So it's a bit of a weaker form. And yet, it's still, I hate to use this term, it backtests very well. And I have very little doubt it's going to do much better, much, much better over time than the standard indexes. Well, I, I applaud you for this because I think it's it's one thing to criticize the you know the popular indexes, and it's another thing to actually try and come up with a better mousetrap. And this sounds like that. It sounds like actually, you found it. So, actually, you talked me into this this, this next uh, uh, reaction of mine, which is that um, he wouldn't approve it. I don't want to speak for him, but I, just speaking lightly, like if I could if I could if I could interest Jack Bogle in this fund as an index for the average investor. And the reason I think is a softer qualitative reason I think it could be good for individual investors is because part of the idea of this is that, look, if, if one of these companies, or even the index itself, is falling, right? But you could say, look, these people who are, uh, who are owning these companies, you know, if, if it were ten year, five years ago, it would say Steve Jobs. Okay, Apple stock's down. Steve Jobs isn't selling. And if he's not selling, I don't have to sell. Right? I can stay in. And that's the idea. That's the idea. And owner-operators, by the way, they do not buy back their shares when they're overvalued. They buy them back when they're undervalued. Right, because their incentives are aligned with the rest of yeah. the owners. Right? Yeah. They they're not just yeah. trying to push the stock price up in the short term to, to make their bonus. Yeah. Yeah. And even with Warren Buffett, I remember reading one of his uh, annual reports from some years ago, and he said, you know, now is not the time to buy Berkshire Hathaway stock. If you look at where it's selling relative to our measure of intrinsic value, and here's how we calculate intrinsic value, yeah, I don't think you're going to do so well if you buy it now. Yeah. But that's, that's the owner-operator mentality. Yeah. Well, that's that's fascinating, and I'm going to have to check out those indexes, and I encourage everyone to go check out horizonkinetics.com. Some fascinating stuff there, and I always look forward to your, your quarterly or presentations. How often do you do those videos? Is that quarterly? 
No, uh, videos, actual videos. No, that was only. I, 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 I trembled at the at the prospect of it. That was only because uh, Jim Grant invited me to be a speaker at the Grants Conference, and so they videotaped me. That's the only reason there was a videotape. Well, there was there was also. Was it just an annual presentation or just a first quarter presentation? Oh, we make we make quarterly. We make quarterly. I make a quarterly presentation to our, our clients. It's available after a day or two on our website. But that's a webinar. That's just me speaking. Right, but it's, I, I watched the last one and I I was just as enthralled as I was the with the the Grant's um, presentation. So. Oh, that was my debate with Mr. Bogle. With what's really a debate? We kind of agreed on on many topics, but just disagreed on on um, a couple of items. Right, right. Well, thanks so much, Stephen, for taking the time with me today. I think. Uh, you've presented a lot of uh, valuable uh, information for investors who um, have not heard a lot of this stuff. You know, there, there's a there's a whole you know big push to to passive investing. There's a lot of propaganda out there, and there's not a lot of um, you know cutting through all that. And what, what's the truth underneath it? So I really, really thank you very much for sharing this with me today. You're saying goodbye to me, but you remind me of something else. And so I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to try your patience just for one more. No, minute. no, go right ahead, please do. You're talking about all the push towards indexation and everybody's talking about it. You know, there's some wisdom in the marketplace that, you know, where everybody else is going, it can't be, it can't be the right way. There has to be a better place. And it reminds me of uh, when my wife and I would go to theater in Manhattan. Anybody's ever been to theater in Manhattan and those various blocks where all the theaters are. So if you ever go to a Sunday matinee, and so you get out at like three in the afternoon, it's wintertime. And everybody's got their, their winter coats on. And they're slowly filing, painfully slowly filing out into the, into the lobby area, the vestibule. And you have very often these three sets of double glass doors. And everybody is they're beginning to sweat because the lobby's heated and they're in their winter coats. And they're looking at their watches. And you can see they're, they're impatient. They have a, a dinner to go to or an appointment to go to. And, and who are these people? They're all... Most of them very well-educated people. They, 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 they're doctors and lawyers and accountants and business people. And they're all filing slowly through one set of open glass doors. And sometimes I'd stand there, and I'd, I'd elbow my wife gently in the side, and I'd say, look over there. Those other, sets, those other two sets of glass doors, I don't see any chains on them. And we, we'd go over and we'd test them, and sure enough, they're open. And so here you have these sophisticated, intelligent people just came from watching a very interesting, subtle play with lots of word play, and they're all lined up going through the same two doors, and there are plenty of other exits. And that's, that's what I'd say about the market and indexation and why everybody's got to be there. No, they don't. They don't got to be there. Yeah, there's plenty of other opportunities, and you don't have to tell me that. I'm I'm naturally crowd crowd phobic. I, I yes. that's why I live in the middle of nowhere. I don't I can't stand crowds. So, um, but yeah, again, thanks, Stephen. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this, and um, we'll have notes to to this show on on uh, thefeldreport.com. I'll put up a blog post that'll have uh, hopefully some slides you can share with me, Steve, and and um, along with some other resources. So. Uh, Jesse, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, you were finishing every thought of mine, so that was interesting. Thank you so much. <laughs> Great. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. And that does it for another episode. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, buy low, sell high.
man looks in the abyss, there's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.